what is this new Hindu identity for which there's a lot of, uh, you know, energy and there's a kind of a renaissance globally and in India. So what does this Hindu identity look like? And, uh, you know, the, the whole, uh, the, you know, the, the quote-unquote caste system, etc., is wrongly understood. There is, in fact, no such, we have to cast out that word caste. It is wrongly understood. And then we have to go back to the scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita and the Purusha Sukta to uh, understand properly what is it that's being said. And then we have to be brave enough to see that if there is anything, you know, in terms of social inequality, if the Upanishads are not addressing this or if they are badly characterizing something or the Bhagavad Gita, we can easily let go of that without injuring the teaching. And we have to be brave enough to do that. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. This week, Suhag Shukla asked Swamini's Fatma Vidyananda about the importance of Hindus identifying as Hindus, her views on the rise of people calling themselves spiritual but not religious, Hinduism and psychological care, and much, much more. There's a lot of wisdom packed into the next 30 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. Swamini Swatma Vidyananda Saraswati is a long time and accomplished disciple of Parampuja Sri Swami Dayanand Saraswati, the founder of Ashavidya Gurukulam, located in Sailorsburg, Pennsylvania. She splits her time between Washington, D.C. and Oregon at two affiliate centers of Ashavidya. She is an internationally respected scholar and practitioner of Advaita Vedanta. Swamini Ji was responsible for the inception of the All India Movement of Seva, Aim for Seva a nonprofit enabling rural Indian children to receive a proper education. She was also a founding member of the Global Women's Peace Initiative, an international network of women and men, spiritual and community leaders. I had the honor of participating on a panel on women in the Hindu tradition in 2012, the first time I met Swaminiji, and most recently listening to her erudite yet practical satsang at a local friend's home. Swamini Swatma Vidyananda, travels around the globe to share with seekers a vision of an engaged Hindu tradition rooted in the teachings of the Upanishads to address the most pressing challenges facing humankind, really all of life today. It's an honor to have you here, Swaminiji. Namaste and welcome. Uh, namaste. Thank you for the very flattering introduction. Of course, of course. And I don't think I did do service because I know you are very busy and educating um, so many people and so many souls, enlightening um, their, their perceptions and their knowledge around the world. So I have a couple of questions. Um, you know, the team at HAF had, um, we have a lot of impromptu satsang. And that sparked an idea for me that, you know, some of these questions that we struggle with, we have been very blessed and fortunate with our work at HAF to come across learned people like yourselves. So how about we just turn some of those questions over to people who know a lot better than us, or at least are wiser. And so to that end, I have a number of questions. The first one is around Hindu identity. You know, we come from a tradition that largely holds that it's our identification with the material world that is the cause of ignorance and suffering. So. Is it important, we are the Hindu American Foundation after all, 
Is it important for Hindus to identify as Hindus? If so, why? If not, why? I think it is important because that's who one is. And uh, the religious slash spiritual identity is one's core identity because that is one's relationship to what we call God, Ishvara. And this is very, very important because that is one's core identity. One is first and foremost related to the whole, related to Bhagavan, Ishvara, God. And then one is related to, you know, then one can be a daughter or a son, uh, a spouse, a mother, a father, a friend, a co-worker. So this is a very primal and primary identity because the human mind and heart, they are wired to be one with that source, to seek that source. And it's an uncultivated desire, unlike things like cable TV or chocolate cake, things like that. It's an uncultivated desire. And so, yes, you know, there's nothing wrong in, uh, in wanting this identity or embracing this identity. And, uh, you know, they said that, uh, what is that? They said that the people who uh, came, they could not say the word Sindhu, and they called us Hindu. I don't mind, because Sanskrit is a very elastic language. We can derive a wonderful meaning for the word Hindu. Him, dushayati, khandayati iti hinduhu. The one that is intolerant of intolerance is a Hindu. I love that. I really do. Because one of the things that we see as a core foundation or core fundamental principle of Hindu teachings is pluralism, to be um, open to difference, to accept that there's more than one way of seeing. And, and so that's another way of, of kind of encapsulating that concept. So you brought up um, spiritual and religious, but oftentimes, especially in the West, we do come across people who say they are we refer to them as SBNRs, spiritual, but not religious. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, many of these people that we meet, they aren't necessarily born into Hindu families, but the beliefs that they have are rooted in Hindu teachings and practices. Yet they refuse or opt not to identify as Hindu. So let's, you know, think about like a, a yoga practitioner who for all intents and purposes has really kind of assimilated yama and niyama and some of the metaphysical presumptions that the yoga tradition offers. So what this has resulted in, in what we have found in our work, is that many of these ancient practices are no longer being identified with Hinduism. So do you see this kind of trend of delinking, whether it's Vedanta, yoga, Ayurveda, is there a is there a problem in the delinking? Is it okay as long as people are moving towards the pluralistic ideas espoused by Hinduism to not acknowledge the Hindu roots or to identify it as Hindu? Well, you know, whether we like it or not, it is a trend that is happening, you know. Sure. And we have to address it. And to, to the people who, who, whatever you call them, SD and R, um, I would say, you know, 
what is the problem here? What, why is it that you are, you know, eschewing the, the mother, the source of all this? Why would you take the practices, but not the nomenclature or not the identity? And I have talked to a number of people like this, and uh, they generally would say that they are uncomfortable with the identity. They don't want to be boxed in. And this is usually the younger adults. Or they say they are concerned with this whole, you know, thing that they don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, quote-unquote, this, uh, what is that called? The, the right-wing, fundamentalist, nationalist, uh, oh, you know, that uh, uh, the word Hindu brings in that, yeah, drags in this whole Pandora's box of labels. And uh, that is concerning for people because nobody wants to be identified as right-wing nationalist fundamentalist. And, uh, you know, to a certain extent, we can't blame them because in the media, there is a very uh, serious way in which the two are linked. So shifting gears a little bit, um, this was a question from several people on our team in terms of what the role of a Swami is in today's world. So do you see your role as solely limited to providing guidance on spiritual sadhana? If so, who provides guidance more broadly on matters that concern the entire Hindu community? You know, in the past, kings sought the advice of religious leaders on enforcing dharma in society. So what happens in the secular world for Hindus? Yeah, so, you know, we don't really provide guidance unless it is sought. That is something which, you know, sadhus do is that, you know, you, you basically mind, at least, you know, we were taught to mind our own business until somebody came and said, look, you know, I'm having some kind, it's usually not a religious question or even a spiritual question. It is more of a mental angst a psychological, you know, kind of a dharma sankata that we call in uh, Sanskrit, a kind of a conflict, a fear, a psychological, you know, uh, a precipice of which kind of a choice to make and what are the problems uh, of making certain choices as opposed to certain others. That's where I think the swamis spend most of their time and they are the most effective. Of course, you know, some famous swamis, you know, uh, have the responsibility or the prarabdha the, to, to guide world events and religious leaders as well. But for the, you know, for the most of the swamis, it's more people from various religious traditions. They don't need to be Hindus, but uh, the issues are the same, you know how to be a good parent and how to balance work and home, how to, you know, how to uh, get ahead in society while at the same time being very mindful of not competing, you know, unfairly uh, with, with one's, you know, peers. So these are the kinds of questions that, you know, the Swamis really address. I, I have always found it um, entertaining that most of the satsangs that I attend, um, swamis and swaminis have some of the best marriage jokes. That they're obviously very good observers of human nature, having not having as many attachments in the world. I think it 
provides that opportunity. And there's um, a safety or, or a love and adoration um, in the relationships that are established that people are quite open. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I have gotten a, a chuckle or two. I wish I was better at remembering jokes. Um, because I've had, I've heard some good ones. Um, so, you know, this kind of goes along with, with those people who might seek counsel, but you know, what we're seeing today is that stress, anxiety, depression, and mental appearance, uh, illness rather appear to be on the rise around the world. And of course, Hindus are not immune to this suffering. What do you see as some of the root causes? What do Hindu teachings and practices offer to alleviate this kind of suffering, if anything? The root cause, the the, the root cause is a sense of rootlessness, because we, are, you know, this is the hallmark of, uh, uh, you know, all people, whether they are living in the motherland, India, or whether they have immigrated, you know, they are far away from the roots, from the teachings that nurture. Uh, the, the teachings of the Hindu tradition, whether they belong to, you know, the first portion of the Veda that talks about how to live a connected life to Dharma, to Ishvara, a life, a prayerful life, a life of Karma Yoga Seva, or the second portion of the Veda, which says, you are that which you seek, you are the whole, you are one with with the Lord and the Goddess. It uh, doesn't matter which portion of the Veda, but both of them they nurture. In fact, Adi Shankara says that the Veda nurtures like a thousand functional mother. Hitaishini Sahasra Matravat. So, you know, and uh, we don't know our own uh, spiritual heritage. We don't know the treasure that we are sitting on. Uh, we And we don't have the time to find out. Everybody is running around and when when one runs around without knowing the purpose why one is running around, it seems like a purposeless, mad rat race. And that is the root of, you know, a lot of suffering because the desires are not managed. There is no discipline in uh, which desires to fulfill and which to just let go of. And uh, there is an alienation, a sense of alienation from the whole. And there is a pining and a longing to be one with something or the other, but one doesn't know what. And so it, uh, you know, it just sort of has a snowball effect because even the parents are divorced from this knowledge and what they are able to give the children is less and less in each generation. So, you know, we, in in our Hinduism 101, we have this beautiful flow chart of all the various sacred texts that we have in our tradition. And it can certainly be overwhelming. You have four Veda, then you have their subsections, you have the Upanishad and so many of them. You have the Mahabharata, the Ramayan. Where would you recommend that a person start if they don't have a basis? Well, the Bhagavad Gita is all-encompassing as a text. It, it talks about everything. and that, that is very, very well-rounded. And then if people don't have the time or the energy to read that, they can begin with something like Ramayana or Mahabharata that has a lot of dharma as well. And if one is a child, you know, small stories from the Puranas, from Panchatantra, whatever it is, you know. And those stories also have morals. 
and one can begin there. But uh, the Bhagavad Gita is just wonderful. If one can find, uh, you know, the time to listen to some lectures, one can even take the time to read. Slowly, it it helps to see that one is not the, you know, one is a sakshi, a witness, to whom, you know, who is the observer of everything that is happening in the universe, and one is not really participating in anything. One is a one is an unaffected observer. That inner space, it helps to give. All, all the stories from the Ramayana, Mahabharata, Bhagavatam stories, etc., Puranic stories, they, they, they do two things very well. One is they, they talk about the characters as archetypes, positive and negative archetypes, which are wonderful because they are role models of who to follow and, and who to not. And the second thing they do is that they they talk about dharma and they talk about how to come out of difficult situations mentally emotionally how to grow so these are all uh, uh, you know wonderful for self growth emotional growth and to get to the place of observing what is ha- happening in one's life even the difficult things rather than you know thinking it is happening to me rather than identifying with it uh, you know, I used to teach Malvihar and I had eighth graders. And I, what I found incredible about the Mahabharata or the Ramayana is that you have these ancient, ancient tales that are thousands of years old. But you can take a story like the, the story of when Bhishma, uh, Sri Bhishma is on the bed of arrows and he's giving kind of these life lessons they're still applicable today. So I would oftentimes have my students say, okay, pick someone who's famous. And they might pick, you know, a rock star or someone like Oprah Winfrey. And I would say, now pick someone infamous. And we could literally trace all the things that, you know, Bhishma said you should do were things that the people who are famous even today kind of emulate those values without necessarily knowing. But those who are infamous were also kind of guilty of the things that he said not to do. So it was a nice way of kind of tying in uh, the just the kind of an important lesson that even though these stories are old, even though they might be happening in a field that is completely unrelated to what we can imagine or that's our life today, um, there's still application. Uh, but I think that, you know, kind of really honing in on a few is is helpful, I think, for many seekers. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, So we have our own internal understanding of our tradition, but in our work and amongst the Hindu communities that we come in contact with, there's kind of an overwhelming sense that Hinduism is held to a hypercritical lens than that of other religious traditions, be it representations in the media, conflation of politics in India, and Hindus um, to the way that Hinduism is taught in public education, where there's kind of a predominant Kaskal Curry stereotype that uh, kind of colors the way in which Hinduism is taught and also understood. There's also biases that we see in academia where kind of absurd theories that are fixated on exotica win accolades and awards. So what can we as Hindus do to protect against these negative portrayals and at the same time continue to evolve the tradition 
as it's intended to across intercommunity concerns such as inequality or discrimination, both of which impact whether we'll see future generations of Hindus who find value in the teachings and the traditions. Wonderful question. You know, uh, we have to speak up because in a, you know, silence is uh, not an option anymore. Silence is seen as just a complicitness, complicity to, to whatever is going on. And it is a grave injustice that, uh, you know, Hinduism is seen badly uh, in all those uh, stereotypes that you mentioned in all the areas, whether we talk about academia, I call it academentia, and then uh, whether you talk about um, anything. It's, it's, it's there, and we have to remember that, you know, this is not new. This is something we have, you know, the, the burden of this cash, you know, what, what's that, cow curry and all these things, you know, that has come from, you know, caste cow curry has come from the, you know, British regime. Before that, it was the Mughal regime. And so, you know, these, these are like thousands of, thousand, at least a thousand years old, maybe, maybe more. So, yeah, so we have been, you know, under that kind of a, uh, a glare, you know, the colonial glare and the colonial gaze, the imperialistic gaze has been there constantly with us for, you know, something that started so long ago. It will take time and we have to educate. And that education, you know, takes, takes uh, you know, uh, uh, many, many forms. Some people have to do this one-on-one. -on -one. Some people will be doing it globally as, you know, as their own karma takes them. And some people have to do it in academia, you know. And that's one of the main reasons I continue to teach Vedanta in the university. <laughs> Even though it is, you know, it can be so challenging to translate something that was taught from, uh, you know, thousands of years in a lineage sitting at the feet of the teacher and just studying to, you know, teaching it in a university setting where, you know, it is uh, it is uh, dissected, cut open, analyzed critically and all these things. And it's, a ch it's, it's very challenging, but in a very good way because, you know, in and through that, I see that as an opportunity to correct some of these long-standing, you know, stereotypes and wrong understandings. And then, you know, we need more people to work in the field of journalism. That is where we are really lacking, you know. Yeah. And then the other thing, you know, in, in journalism, you know, I'll give you an example. In the 2019 election coverage in the Western media, whether you talked about Washington DC, with the, uh, sorry, Washington Post, whether you talked about New York Times, anything. They all said, oh, Modi's party, Hindu nationalist, right-wing, you know, fundamentalist party. Everyone, each and everyone. There was not a single thing. And then, you know, that had me thinking. It was, it was extremely troubling to see this, uh, you know, banded together like that. And then that, you know, and then they were kind of, uh, you know, contradicting themselves. They were saying it's the world's largest democracy. And then they are still voting for this nationalist, fundamentalist, right-wing. So then it is also, it's, a, it's kind of a double-edged sword because it's, 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 it's dissing the electorate as so gullible that they are only going for this. You know, he's come back with a landslide because they don't, they don't know any better. 
And so in, in other words, democracy is wasted on the Indian electorate because they keep going and, you know, embracing this. And then the other thing, you know, the uh, I was in some kind of an interfaith setting. Um, it was not a conference, but like a thinking, uh, some kind of a brainstorming session. And people said something like, uh, so somebody said, oh, it's so bad that this is what is happening, that everybody is going to, that Hinduism is becoming increasingly defined as this uh, fundamentalist, right-wing nationalist thing. And then, you know, I asked them one question. There, were, there was, you know, all, all religions, people were there. So I asked the person, I said, do you think it's possible to be a Christian without being evangel identified as evangelical or colonial or whatever, imperialistic? And he said, yes. Then I asked another question. Is it possible to identify as a Muslim without being a terrorist? And they said, of course. And then I said, okay, in the same way, do you think that it is possible to be a Hindu without being a fundamentalist, nationalist, uh, you know, right-winger? Winger? And the room was silent. There were about 12, 15 people. Nobody could even think about it. They could not, uh, I said, this is exactly the problem. You know, that same, you know, uh, freedom that you accord for the Christian to be identified as a Christian without, you know, identifying himself or herself with a fundamentalist, uh, you know, epithet, uh, or the Muslim to identify as a Muslim without, you know, all the other, you know, wrong stereotypes. And why can't we have a Hindu identity? That is what, you know, that is what these questions have to be asked, especially in the field of journalism. And we have to, uh, and that's the second part of your question. We then have to sort of, you know, look at what, what is this new Hindu identity for which there's a lot of, uh, you know, energy and there's a kind of a renaissance globally and in India. So what does this Hindu identity look like? What is it going to look like? And, uh, you know, the, the whole, uh, the, you know, the, the quote-unquote caste system, etc., is wrongly understood. There is, in fact, no such, we have to cast out that word caste. It is wrongly understood. And then we have to go back to the scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita and the Purusha Sukta to uh, uh, understand properly what is it that's being said. And then we have to be brave enough to see that if there is anything, you know, in terms of social inequality, if the Upanishads are not addressing this or if they are badly characterizing something or the Bhagavad Gita, we can easily let go of that without injuring the teaching. And we have to be brave enough to do that. Inspiring. Inspiring to hear that. So, you know, we, you brought up the, the media and, um, and so that kind of leads me into my next um, question, um, especially because we do see a lot of conflation and you spoke up so eloquently in that meeting that you just referred to. But, you know, what do we do um, about the fact that, you know, we're hearing a lot about the rise of Hindutva vis-a-vis -vis Indian politics these days. And we're also seeing more and more the rise of so-called American Hindutva. How do you, but, but the, the challenge here is that no one really defines what they mean by Hindutva, but it's pretty clear that it's not a positive thing. So is there a single definition of Hindutva or do you have a definition of Hindutva? Well, you know, the, the literal meaning of the word Hindutva is Hinduness. 
That's all it means, you know. And it has, as you correctly, you know, observe, it has a lot of pejorative, uh, and uh, you know, understanding. There's a lot of pejorative sense of Hindutva, again, means this whole string, right-wing, fundamentalist, nationalist, you know, where, you know, the Hindu way or the highway, and then again, somehow the cow features in very, in a big way, and then, you know, and then there's a new stereotype that, you know, they want to save the cow and kill the person. You know, that is, you know, that kind of a thing. And it uh, it's a grave injustice because, you know, if I were to think of Hindutva, it would be again that definition, you know, that was given earlier. And in fact, the one who came up with the definition, he's no more, but he was the uh, earlier uh, in the 80s, he was the principal of the Sanskrit college in uh, Chennai, you know. And he was the one who came with the definition, came up with the definition, the one who cannot stand intolerance, one who is intolerant of intolerance, is a Hindu. And I think that's what we have to, you know, look at. We have to look at uh, what this identity, what is the spirit of this identity? You know, the form can change because we have, we embrace so many forms of prayer, of meditation, of sadhana, of beliefs. Everything is okay. But what is the spirit of this identity? And, and then we also need to, at the same time, see why is this, the reclamation of this identity dangerous to the world discourse? Who is it threatening and why? And if we, if we really deeply look at it together, then perhaps we can find some ways to assuage people's you know, worries and concerns about this. So I have one last question for you. You know, I'm the mother of, of two boys, 21 and 17. I'm sure you come across so many families um, and young second and third generation Hindu Americans. What, um, in your view and in your experience, what's the state of the future of Hinduism in America? I think it's looking very good. You know, I think that uh, Hinduism is thriving in America and the people are not scared to call themselves Hindus, partly because of mothers and fathers like yourself, parents like yourself, you know, who have, you know, inculcated this in, in, in your children. And partly also because, you know, the people have a curious mind and, you know, the young ones. And then there is, uh, to support this, there is some kind of uh, energy towards a global renaissance of Hinduism. I really, really feel that. And so, therefore, uh, they don't have that baggage. They don't have like so much of a baggage uh, of, oh my God, I'm calling myself Hindu. What does that mean? And uh, because, you know, that, that is one of the nice things about America. You can, you know, you can explore the identity, you can refashion it, you can redesign it, and you can, you know, and people will say, I'm this kind of a Hindu, but I'm not that, or whatever it is. And so I think the future is actually quite, quite bright. And thanks to the Bal Vihars, you know, all over America and all these things, and even if the children stop going to it after 16, they don't, or 15, whenever it is, they refuse, but still the foundation is there. You know, they may, they may not, you know, they may not even attend pujas or whatever it is. They may not be overly religious, but the foundation is there. In a way, you know, they are Hindu at heart and, uh, you know, the values are there. That is what Hinduism is about. It's about dharma. That's the first thing. So the dharma is there. The values are there. And then, you know, regardless of whether they call them or themselves that or not, they are coming from 
you know their heart is in the right place and they're coming from you know those values and they are acting on that behalf and that gives me a lot of hope in my dealing with the young you know with the youth Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. And if you really enjoyed this episode and want to ensure more of them get made, you can also make a donation to HAF over at hafsite.org slash donate. Finally, if you have any comments or suggestions, please email sohindu at hafsite.org. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>